In the end, I went back to Iowa because I thought somehow the past held the answer to my future. I was at the age when fears were taking hold. Fear of becoming my mother, fear of not being as good as my mother, fear of becoming an adult and letting go of everything that had made my childhood vivid and hopeful, mystical and turmeric scented. In leaving behind a world where spending hours a day meditating was the norm, I had ended up with an adult life that felt empty of the quiet sacredness I had taken for granted as a kid. Around me, it felt like everyone was starting to meditate and practice yoga, things that when I was growing up had marked me as an outsider in our divided Midwestern town. I had worked hard to get where I was, but everything I'd strived for increasingly felt like a burden. I was perpetually exhausted and anxious, and I couldn't shake a looming sense of dissatisfaction. I had a sense I'd let something precious slip through my fingers. Had I made a mistake? Somewhere along the line in trying to be a normal person, had I let go of who I was? This felt particularly troubling for me since I had grown up practicing transcendental meditation. But now, people like Katy Perry and Russell Simmons and Rupert Murdoch were tweeting about how great TM was, how transformed their lives had become, and people kept asking me, did I like it? Did it work? Where could they learn it? Would it make me happier? This confluence of events, my own malaise, my struggle with how to be an adult and a good parent, and a resurgence of TM in the zeitgeist, put the idea in my head that I needed to go home, and I needed to learn how to fly. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, October 17th, 2016, and today we'll be bringing you greetings from Utopia, or at least the memories from a trailer park therein, and we'll do so with writer and memoirist Claire Hoffman author of the recent Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. In this intimate memoir, acclaimed journalist Claire Hoffman reflects upon her childhood in the heartland, growing up in an increasingly isolated meditation community in the 1980s and 90s. It's a fascinating, disturbing look at a fringe culture and its true believers. When Claire is five years old, her mother informs her and her seven-year-old brother Stacy that they are going to live in heaven, Iowa. <laughs> in Maharishi's National Headquarters for Heaven on Earth. For Claire's mother, Transcendental Meditation, the Maharishi's method of meditation and his approach to living the fullest possible life was a salvo that promised world peace and enlightenment. At first, this secluded utopia offers warmth and support and makes these outsiders feel calm, secure, and connected to the world. Claire attends the Maharishi school where her meditations were graded and she and her class learned Maharishi's principles for living. But as Claire and Stacy mature, their adolescent skepticism kicks in, drawing them away from the community and into delinquency and drugs. Eventually, Claire moves to California with her father and breaks from Maharishi completely. A decade later, after making a name for herself in journalism and starting a family, she begins to feel exhausted by cynicism and anxiety. She finds herself longing for the sparkle-filled, belief-fueled, utopian days in Iowa, meditating around the clock. So she returns to her hometown in pursuit of TM's highest form of meditation, levitation. This journey will transform ideas about her childhood, family, and spirituality. Greetings from Utopia Park takes us deeply into this complex, unusual world, illuminating its joys and comforts and its disturbing problems. 
While there is no utopia on Earth, Hoffman reveals there are noble goals worth striving for, believing in belief, inner peace, and a firm understanding that there is a larger fabric of the universe to which we all belong. Hoffman works as a magazine writer living in Los Angeles, covering culture, celebrity business, and whatever else seems interesting. She was formerly a staff reporter for the LA Times and Rolling Stone and a freelance reporter for the New York Times. More information about her work can be found at her website, clairehoffman.com. It really is a treat to have her with us today. How are you doing, Claire? I'm good, Douglas. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Wonderful. So, your book is fabulous. I really enjoyed it. But before we dig into it, I'm curious when and how you experienced the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I, believe it or not, am currently experiencing them. I am reading it to my six-year-old. And she is loving it and being a sort of lifelong misfit and jerk. I avoided them for however long it's been, a decade, two decades. And then uh, my adorable six-year-old Josie begged for me to read them to her. And I totally love it and have a hard time not reading ahead when she goes to sleep. Do you experience any kind of sense of deja vu a little bit, though, with those? Oh, uh, I see. I see. <laughs> I didn't even get that that was your joke. Um, I There is some of that, you know. I mean, uh, certainly the, the sort of sense of being marked as a kid I relate to and thinking that you had superpowers and that you could – uh, do incredible things that other people couldn't do. I I do relate to that. Yes, <laughs> I had no like owl or or falcon though. So, <laughs> but I mean, this idea before I read your book, I had awareness and awareness of Maharishi because of the Beatles and because of David Lynch, but I really didn't know the extent of it and the idea that there was like a school for transcendental meditation, you know, in the eighties in Iowa, that, that was complete. I had no idea about any of that. And so I, it was hard for me not to imagine a little bit the Harry Potter series because it was, you know, you were, you weren't a muggle. You were, you were special. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, you know, and as you know from the book, we, the town, very quickly when we moved there, you know, I realized that the town was divided into two kinds of people. There were the townies, who were the regular people, and the gurus, which was us. And, you know, there were good and bad things about both, but as gurus, we felt like we were you know, sort of purpose-driven and special. And, you know, I mean, usually, you know, our parents had gone to college and were better educated. Um, and, you know, we just had this utopian vision of, of how we were going to change the world. So, you know, there was definitely that sense of distinction, which I have to say is one of the hard things about growing up and realizing, you know, that you're an average person. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, your book really hit home with me because I definitely went through something where I was really searching for meaning. You know, what is a prophet? And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
well, I mean, what is a prophet? I mean, a prophet is somewhat of a loose category, I guess, you know, or a guru in, in our case. And I think it's somebody who elevates themselves or is elevated and, you know, turns back towards his crowd or his followers or others and says, you know, I have seen the truth. I know the truth about life and I know the path to enlightenment or heaven or salvation or whatever the nomenclature of the belief is. And you follow me and, and, and I'll show you the way because my knowledge is special. I, I, I can, I have some kind of special privilege to see. And that's, that's what I sort of think of when I think of a guru. Yeah. And then, so What's fascinating is lately I've been thinking about the idea that we we haven't had any moments where people are swept up in some kind of interesting spiritual zeitgeist is what I've been thinking. But then I, you know, I didn't even know about how big Maharishi was, and so this kind of was really fascinating to me. Could you tell the listeners who who he was and and you know where he came from and how he you know what he became? I guess. Sure. So Maharishi started out as a, a young man named Mahesh who was going to college in India in the you know nineteen um, the nineteen thirties and forties, and he uh, you know was studying math and he was from a clerical family. His father was a local administrator. And one day he went to go visit a local guru with friends, like a a spiritual leader in the community, sort of officially ordained the Shankaracharya. And uh, it was a really powerful experience. And he said later on, you know, that he felt like he wanted to drop everything and devote his life to this man who he would call Guru Dev. And he did, you know, he, he finished college because that's what Gurudev asked him to do. And he spent the next decade as a secretary for the spiritual teacher. And when the spiritual teacher died, Gurudev died, you know, the sort of legend goes that he, you know, was so heartbroken. He went and lived in a cave and meditated for, you know, something like four years just eating berries. And when he emerged, he had this vision and a sort of mission, which was to teach the world meditation. And this was sort of a revolutionary idea. This is, you know, the 1950s, uh, mid-1950s. And, and, and it, the, it was a big idea because it was taking meditation out of the sort of ashram and opening it up to regular people, what he called, you know, the householder class and, you know, the average man and woman could make meditation part of their life. They didn't have to retreat into um, a cave and, and do it. And so, uh, you know, he's incredibly driven and he, he came to the United States and then to Europe. And pretty quickly by the 1960s, you know, I've become sort of a darling of a lot of kind of muddied, uh, sorry, <laughs> muddied, <laughs> muddied spiritual seekers. And, uh, and the the Beatles went to to see him and were like, this is this is totally our scene, you know, like we don't want to do acid anymore. Like we want to have some sort of sober path to these transcendent 
higher states of consciousness. And, you know, they went to Rishikesh, his ashram, and spent time with him there. And that's, you know, a story unto itself. And in the 70s, you know, transcendental meditation was just huge. You know, something a crazy percentage of the American population had learned. It cost $35. It was 20 minutes uh, in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon. And then, you know, I mean, sort of where my story begins is this a uh, strange turn that Maharishi took in the late seventies and, you know, really at the height of his popularity when, you know, it became totally part of pop culture to meditate, to have a mantra. He, uh, he sort of came out with this special technique that cost thousands of dollars and it was called the TM city technique. And it promised you, um, basically superpowers. I mean, that's what city means. And, you know, the early, advertisements from that time show, you know, say like, you know, the strength of an elephant, the ability to walk through walls, the power of invisibility, and the ability to levitate. And that was the big one was that you could levitate. And, you know, what happened was, you know, his popular falling contracted as it does when you promise levitation um you know people a lot of people were turned off but the people who were turned on were really turned on and he went further in saying that not just that he could teach people to levitate but this technique if practiced in large groups could create world peace and he bought a bankrupt little university in a small town in Iowa and asked his you know true followers to move there. He wasn't there. He was in India and Europe, but to move there, practice this city technique, this levitation technique and create world peace. And so, um, we did, we moved there in, in the early eighties and, you know, for most of, I, I, you know, I saw Marishi once from a distance when I was six years old, he came to Fairfield once when I was a kid and, and he never came back. And so for me, Marishi was this sort of remote Wizard of Oz figure. He was telecast into our celebrations on big flat screen TVs or phone calls. We watched videos of him. And, you know, his knowledge was sort of trickled into the community through the sort of powerful elite that had access to him, usually through donations. And you know, I went to the Maharishi School of the Age of Enlightenment. You know, my mom meditated at the Maharishi Patanjali Golden Domes of Pure Knowledge. You spent three to four hours a day there. So everything in our life in Iowa was dedicated to Maharishi and his teachings. But, you know, he, was, he wasn't there. So a lot of who Maharishi is to me is also in some ways, you know, a manufactured sort of figment of my imagination because – I had to kind of create an understanding of who he was since he wasn't there. So I read a lot of Joseph Campbell a, a few years ago. And so his whole thing was this idea of myth and how myth is the lens through which a culture derives the meaning. Like they need a narrative so that they have a, a sense of place and where they came from and the purpose of, you know, the tribe or wh whoever they are. And, his conclusion was that modernity lacked a, a good mythology, and that's why we were so empty, mm. which, which is kind of a fascinating thing. But, I mean, that's kind of the crux of my thought. I'm always wondering about 
where do p people find meaning? And so your story is really interesting in this sense because you did have this narrative and then slowly as you grew older and and kind of dealt with the idea that th the prophet might actually be human with mm -hmm. all the human failings that that diminished the idea of the goal of the the narrative on some level mm -hmm. yeah i mean that has definitely been part of you know my struggle as an adult in you know and certainly it was the catalyst of writing this book was that feeling you know really after my first daughter was born of you know a sense of emptiness a lack of a sense of purpose um and, you know, I mean, I, this is funny, um, but, you know, when I was a kid, my mom referred to, uh, you know, the people around us as Americans, right? And we, t she, we talked about what Americans were like, and we weren't Americans, you know, we were meditators. And, you know, this feeling now as an adult of like, oh my God, I'm, a, I'm an American, you know, I'm sort of microwaving my food and drinking wine and watching crappy TV and living this hollow life. Um, well, that that's worth noting too. At, in that culture you were in, you, your diet changed. Right. The, the entire, every, the whole, and to be a vegetarian, <laughs> it, it's amazing to me. I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole, I mean, you called it the program. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was all encompassing and, you know, I mean, I see too, though, I mean, there's something about, it seems to me based on my experience and the people around me, you know, when you sort of hit your thirties and forties, you really sort of start to dig into this project of self, you know, I feel like this self-improvement thing becomes the narrative that many of us attach ourselves to, you know, like we read books, you know, on, on how to be a better person, how to be a quieter person, how to be a more intellectual person, how to be a more spiritual person. You know, you take classes, you, you know, you exercise all these ideas. It's sort of like, you know, I remember hearing a spiritual teacher refer to it as project me. Hmm. And I feel like that becomes the sort of, that's the narrative is just the narrative of self. And I find it, you know, especially I just given my childhood, I find it sort of um, it doesn't it doesn't totally work for me. I mean, it's not that I'm not without the desire to improve, but I also see where that went. You know, I mean, because I so much of being on the program was about self-improvement, you know, about attaining higher states of consciousness, about becoming enlightened that I have a, a wariness of it, you know, I and mean, there's a part of me that says like, okay, where does this go? You know, where, where are we going with this? So I think, you know, I mean, not to skip ahead, but I feel like for me, you know, this idea of modernity as an emptiness, I, I think there's a positive to the emptiness too. I think it's a, it's not incorrect. Interesting. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know, by the way, in case you thought that I was going to figure that out. <laughs> well, you did figure something out for me that and you were able to actually articulate something that I think I had come to. And uh, by way of reference, I've, I've read a couple really interesting cult books where uh, Harry Coons wrote about this UFO cult. And he does such a nice a job of constructing 
how solid the cult is until the belief at the core collapses. And then, of course, it seems ridiculous afterwards. Right. But all the while, when you're reading the book, it is completely sound right up until it collapses. And then uh, recently I read another book, a uh, similar one, um, real similar. Clay Watkins wrote about kind of a desert dystopian cult. And same thing where as, as so long as everyone's believing in the belief – the true the truth is true but as soon yeah. as soon as as soon as you stop believing then of course it becomes absolutely ridiculous yeah and that's you know i mean the book i uh i um i divided into three parts you know and the, there's so the first section is called believing and the second part is doubting and the third part is is i think seeking i don't have it in front of me but um you know, for me, that was a really hard, uh, process. I mean, hard and easy doubt comes very naturally to me, but moving beyond doubt into like something else and more complicated, um, has been hard. You know, I think there's been this real binary in terms of looking at, you know, belief communities and religions, um, and frankly, even like politics or any strong belief system where, you know, it's either right or wrong, the truth or, or a lie. And, and for me, I feel like the, you know, where I exist is a much grayer area, you know, like I, people often ask me about Marishi, you know, was he a true spiritual teacher? You know, was he truly, you know, a guru or was he, you know, some kind of con artist? And, you know, I say like, I think he was different things at different times, you know, he was, he was, he was a human being. So there were, there was times that he was, you know, sort of had this enlightened, uh, motivation, but he also had other motivations and, you know, to think that he didn't ever want power or money to me is more absurd than thinking he, he, you know, that he did. It's, I, I don't know. I just, I think there's this idea of purity that people have about these these teachers or um, ideas that, in a way, frustrate ourselves. You know, they they trap us, and I think that there is you know sort of recognizing the the grayness and the fuzziness of it can be sort of liberating. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I wonder if maybe these prophet types are they're seeking the truth and saying the things that they want to believe aloud. Right. So, so like, uh, I mean, as far as an analog to a messianic type, all I can think about are like pop stars these days. So like <laughs> someone like Prince or David Bowie or even John Lennon, where, boy, they're so human, but at the same time I could see how a religion could be wrapped up around them in the future. Right. And you see with these people, I mean, I feel like I've seen that in my career where they're, they're trapped by their own stardom, you know? So they, you know, they are treated like they're special and catered to in every way. And so they expect that and want that and see themselves as deserving as that. And yet at the same time are trapped by it because then they can't, it, it limits how they get to interact and be in the world. And it, it does sort of push them to do these extreme behaviors because they're, 
you know, deified in so many ways. Hmm. Well, the program is definitely, 42 Minutes is interested in the ideas that people need more of a frame around. So uh, we've looked into the ideas of cities because, mm -hmm. but what, you know, what we've found is that oftentimes it's not, the superpowers are not what they're imagined to be like our imaginations are so much more fabulous than and it's it's usually under extreme stress or high emotion that actually that kind of otherworldly connection really breaks breaks through and manifests okay um could you maybe tell us about your experience with flying yeah i mean I'm, it's interesting to to talk to you as somebody who's thought about it from a non TM perspective, um, you know, for me, you know, the, the, the city's course that they teach, um, I did it five years ago and it's a month long and the last 10 days you spend on campus in a, you know, sort of isolated in a group. Um, and by the end, you know, or even in the middle, you're meditating or I was meditating, you know, seven to eight hours a day. Um, and so you experience a lot of, or I experienced a lot of strong feelings and emotions and, uh, an intense experience. And then in terms of the actual cities and the levitation program, for me, you know, it was a real struggle because I felt like I was in this battle between my logical, um, doubting mind you know, that had so many questions and doubts about the viability of the city program. And this other part of me that was so frustrated with that voice and that perspective and really wanted to break free and have, you know, some kind of powerful or transcendent experience. And, you know, I did. Um, it was very brief and it was really beautiful and powerful. I mean, it's, um, I imagine some people have experiences like it every day. For me, it was extremely fleeting. And what I took away from it was um, this sort of sense of trust, I guess, that the part of me that is, you know, kind of not logical and more abstract is is something to, to rely on just as much as that sort of doubting voice is, you know, and not to make, I think so often, or at least for me in the world that I live in, that sort of doubting, um, and logical voice is the guide, you know, that's the sort of the, the, the intellectual, um, voice that you rely on. And for me, I saw how being able to sort of put that to the side allowed me a really sort of big and powerful experience that has stayed with me and kind of changed my meditations. But as far as, you know, the cities, I think it's, it's a strange and abstract concept. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how you guys talk about it, but you know, there's people in the TM movement who feel like actually it's where Marishi messed up, you know, that it was a mistake to do the cities because so much about the regular TM technique is just sort of a pure surrender to like whatever comes, you know, it's this kind of openness. And with the cities, you're invoking 
you're, there is a will or a desire in it, right? Like you're, you say all these sutras and there's, you're invoking, um, you're desiring some kind of specific manifestation and that, that some people see that just, uh, action as problematic, if that makes sense. It does. A lot of the audience is really interested in someone like Aleister Crowley, who, you know, fashioned himself as a magician, yeah. to, to using your will to uh, influence reality in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, curi- yeah. I'm curious about, like, the meditation in particular. So I went to a massage school for a time and was taught meditation, but it was definitely not uh, TM. And so I'm just wondering about the mantra itself and how that does that just center and quiet the mind automatically or in terms of the regular transcendental meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it sort of acts as a, um, uh, it's, I would almost liken it and this is the first time I've done it, but almost like a hand on the back of somebody where it is this sort of calming centering device, the mantra, but it's not, it's not about focus. It's about, you know, having a sort of centering point to return to. Um, and in doing so, the idea is that you slowly are, you know, the, the, the thoughts often do slow down, you know, if they don't, it's fine, but that there is this slowing down of thought and the slipping into some kind of quieter state, you know, the cities. So, you know, the TM cities you do after you've done, um, the TM program for a while. So you, you kind of are in this already calmed state. And after a period of time, you start doing these sutras that are supposed to, you know, sort of invoke these other powers or experiences. And, um, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, the mind kind of remains quiet. I mean, I will say for me, and this is a total mystery. I don't quite understand it. I don't really do the cities anymore. Um, I, I did it very briefly and, you know, I mean, I do it every once in a while, but mostly just having kids, I don't have time to do it. But the experience of going through that process of doing the cities program and, and practicing the cities has, was a huge breakthrough for me in terms of my regular meditation. Um, and it made that a much more powerful, uh, experience, which is fantastic. Okay. So, and then by way of explanation, when you were three, you were given a word of wisdom, but then later you learned what they call the sitting technique. Yeah. Are either of those components still part of your regular practice? Yeah. I mean, I have the same mantra, the, the technique I do today is the same technique that I learned when I was 10. Um, so I, I got a different, I had a mantra when I was three and then I got a different mantra when I was 10. And is that, that's sort of what I'm saying is that my experience with the the cities actually made that like changed the experience of, um, doing that regular sitting meditation that I've been doing for, you know, 25 years. Um, so that was cool. Well, so there was an interesting moment in 2012 where it felt like there was this kind of strange zeitgeist of transcendentalists and also these uh, like electronic singularity folks, you know, they were imagining that something magic was going to happen in 2012. And it was, (laughs) you know, chasing this idea of enlightenment, the kind of same, uh, probably the same kind of heady 
attitude that you know people like your mother were when you're chasing after world peace and enlightenment through this practice i'm wondering it seemed like one of the things that was really arising then was this idea of uh like ayahuasca as being some kind of answer Mm -hmm. you know i'm wondering you know with your background if you looked into that at all and you know how you feel about like you mentioned when you were in the city program, how fleeting it was. Um, right. Like the idea of like uh, numinosity junkies kind of, uh. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am not one, but I, um, you know, I mean the TM movement, which, you know, I, I don't really count myself a part of, but I definitely am a product of, they are all about sobriety, right? So there's no drinking, there's no drugs or alcohol. Um, now that said, I mean, I've certainly experimented with many things. I haven't done ayahuasca, but I, I think that for me, I guess this is probably the part of me that's enough of a product of my, uh, environment. The subtle, um, you know, sort of not very fireworky experiences that I've had not on drugs, you know, sober, just through meditation are much more powerful and meaningful to me because it's something that I experience just on my own, as opposed to something where I'm taking some kind of chemical that creates a change for me. And that doesn't mean I discount those experiences or haven't had amazing experiences taking drugs. But I think for me, you know, the, the containedness of the experience of just of feeling totally myself um, is more powerful. Something that I just realized as I was talking to you is it seems like maybe Maharishi was bringing meditation to the masses about the same time that like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are bringing com computing to the masses. And so, yes. so that's kind of fascinating in some strange way that like we're just moving towards connection. Um, but anyway, I wanted to mention one of the most striking things in the book was uh, the part with David Lynch, who's kind of become the newest face of TM in some respects. Yeah. Uh, so you've actually met him and interviewed him, but then at the same time, you kind of had to let him know that you weren't drinking the same Kool-Aid. Yeah. I mean, David is a, like a really lovely person and he's an absolute true believer, you know? Um, and so we sort of, I wouldn't even say we butted heads cause that would be too grand of a statement, but I think, you know, he, I just was coming from a place of doubt and I had spent, unlike him, you know, I mean, he was meditating, but living in Hollywood and, and being a film director and having a career as an artist. And for me, you know, I grew up in this sort of bubble created by Marishi. And so my experience of Marishi and of his predictions and his knowledge was so different than David's. Um, so, you know, I mean, David has this really strong, you know, evangelical desire to teach the world how to learn to meditate, to learn transcendental meditation. He feels that very powerfully. And I don't have any problem with that. I just, I don't see transcendental meditation as the answer to all that ails the world. 
Well, and so there, there it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can we find a solution to all that ails the world? And where, what does that, what does that solution look like? I, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in a solution that fixes everything. Well, do, I mean, so, and that's kind of where I ended up. Like, there's not going to be this religious pill that's going to make everything happy. But yeah. do, do you think? we could figure out some kind of political solution on some level that is more of an abundance, like taking the best of all the spiritual movements and moving the world in a direction that we'd all like to live in. You know, I think one of the biggest ideas I got out of working on the book and going back and sort of working on this big question of the transcendental meditation movement, but also working on the question of my family within it, and, you know, sort of all the kind of ghosts and goblins that are in my heritage. And, you know, I think that what I saw is that people tend to have such a, what I said, like this black and white understanding of themselves, of their, you know, of their vices and virtues. And so the self-loathing and the desire to escape their humanness um, creates this bad behavior. So it, it creates this deification of these, these people where you say like, Oh, I'm so screwed up and messed up and I, I want to do these bad things or I feel this way and that's wrong. But this guru or prophet or whoever, they're perfect. I want to be like them. And, you know, then you sort of start out on the project of self-improvement and change. And I think that there is, you know, I mean, as stupid as it sounds, there is something about self-acceptance um, and and of who you are that allows you to not only be kinder to yourself but be kinder to others and not see the world through this really extreme viewpoint. You know, I mean, so it's like if you absolutely think that you know Donald Trump is the devil, you know, you got to really sort of investigate that feeling and and try and see you know, try and see himself in you, you know, and, and see that sort of complexity of, of each of us as humans and not these crazy caricatures. Well, sure. And so <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've invoked the shadow and that takes us into yes. Carl Jung territory. I'm wondering if you have I, the community that this show is kind of a part of really found something interesting in the idea of synchronicity, which is the idea of meaningful coincidence. And so I'm just wondering if you have any good synchronicities or is, is this a force in your life that has any meaning at all? You know, I am, I'm observing, I would say. I don't have any conclusions, but I, 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 I'm, my eyes are open to the possibility. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay what are you working on these days anything fascinating capturing your attention you know i'm trying to find a new book to write and i'm on the hunt so i'm open to new ideas if anyone has any they can go to my website and send me an email i am i'm looking as a, a final kind of final thought um as we were talking about the idea of Maharishi going into his cave for those two years and doing his his little uh, what are they um, oh I can't think of what that's called when you actually do that didn't Eckhart Tolle do something really similar like he was, yes he did he went and he just sort of 
he was in the middle of doing his PhD and I think he just kind of freaked out and went and lived in a park for a couple of years. Right. He, yeah. And so am I going to do that? Is that your question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Are you, are you going to be the new prophet? Claire? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I do think it's a great question of like, how can you not do that and still feel connected to those forces of, of, you know, deeper meaning. How can, how can I take my kids to soccer and tennis and wake up and get them to school at seven 30 in the morning and, and still, you know, feel like I'm living a engaged spiritual life. It's confusing. It is confusing. So like David Foster Wallace wants and longs for the human experience and then he hangs himself. Prince kind of dies under these strange, you know, mysterious circumstances like, you know, it, is there a solution for the emptiness that we feel? I think, you know, re, uh, repackaging emptiness, <laughs> rebranding em- emptiness, because I totally get it. And there's so many people that I grew up with that, that, that feel this kind of nihilism and sadness, you know, now that they know that the truth is not true. But I think there is also, you know, sort of accepting the emptiness as um, a positive. That's what I'm working on. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Of course, Douglas. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You bet. You've been listening to Claire Hoffman on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about her book, Greetings from Utopia Park, check out her website, ClaireHoffman.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio, and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and though it's expensive, Americans only truly value that for what they pay for. (laughs) I'm gonna live forever, I'm gonna cross that river. I'm gonna catch tomorrow now You're gonna wanna hold me Just like I always told you You're gonna miss me when I'm gone Nobody here will ever find me But I will always be around Just like the songs I leave behind me I'm gonna live forever now Fathers and you mothers, be good to one another. Please try to raise your children right. Don't let the darkness take them. Don't make them feel forsaken. Just lead them safely to the light. When this old world is blown asunder and all the stars fall from the sky, remember someone really loves you. 
Tomorrow now 